Okay, starting in verse 17 of Luke chapter 6, it reads, He went down with them and stood on a level place. Doesn't sound like Sermon on a Mount at that point, right? So you, you could take that as a plateau if, if you want to try to, in a sense, um, merge the two accounts together. Uh, or, or you could just take it as a separate time that Jesus preached this, as I mentioned earlier. A large crowd of his disciples was there. And a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon. Now, it says the same thing about the crowd over in Matthew 6, that's over in Matthew 5 and the end of Matthew 4. And that's why a lot of people try to harmonize these two accounts because the crowd is described so similarly. So this crowd comes together, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured. The people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. That's an epic scene, is it not? I mean, could you imagine just Jesus there, power coming from him, wave after wave of, of like kind of concentric circles throughout this crowd, having health to their bones, integrity to their soul, all things restored just because they've come in contact with the Messiah, with the very Son of God. Who wouldn't long to crowd in there and somehow come closer to this humble Jesus. What is he all about? He's such a contradiction of being so lowly, but having the greatest power that any of them had ever experienced in their lives. And the words that came from him always shocked them to the core, but after having time to reflect, ended up settling at just the right place in alignment with their conscience that God had given to them in alignment with the very will of God. And so this is the scene as it's gathered together here, powerful, pivotal, all before us. And now, as Jesus calls to them, he addresses his disciples. While there's a great crowd there, he seems to be wanting to zero in, as he often does, on those that were most earnest about not just dabbling in Jesus, not by maybe checking him out a little bit, but in really deciding that they were going to give their all to this Christ. And so looking at his disciples, he said, and this is what we would know from Matthew 5 is the Beatitudes. But these are Beatitudes with teeth because they include not just the blessings, but the woes as well. And as he lays out the blessings, probably that word is so religious that it probably doesn't really have the sharpness of meaning that it's meant to have. Where it's like, oh, you know, oh, God bless you. Well, Thank you. Can you pass me a tissue as well? I mean, it, it means next to nothing well, most of the time when we use it. But the, the idea of blessing is, is one that you would long to hear. It is not just the idea of being happy, although it is that. It is not just the idea of being fortunate, but it is that. It is the idea of coming under the protective wings of God. It is in a sense of saying, God saying to you, I got your back. You know what? It may look like dark times are here, but I got your back. And <clears throat> when the time comes, you'll know it. And you have the great hookup from the Lord. Divine blessing that's able to swoop in at just the time when you need it. To hear that you are blessed is, is this idea to, to, to suddenly kind of shine in your face 
that this could be such a thing that could be mine. Now, on the other hand, he also then pronounces not just four blessings, but four woes. And having grown up in a Jewish community, I've often heard this word for woe, as said in Yiddish, and it is oi, oi, or oi ve. Either one. Both mean woe, by the way. Oi means woe, ve means woe. Oi ve. And even the Greek word that's used here is oye. So it, it's very, very similar of this idea that oi ve, here's what's coming your way. And it's, it's not so much the idea of cursed are you, because it's not a direct antithesis opposite to the blessing idea, but it's more Jesus in his perfect knowledge in sadness looking forward to if you live your life this way, sadly, this is what I see coming for you. And it's a, it's a pronouncement of, of, of something disturbing that will be theirs. It's, it's a compassionate word as, it, as it's uttered here uh, with warning, with teeth, of course, as I mentioned it, but not in the sense of this is the curse that I want to bring your way. But this is my heart cry. I don't want this for you, but oy vey, look what's coming. And so here he lays these four out both ways. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich for you have already received your comfort Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. Now, two points as I, I look through this very provocative set of introductory words by Jesus on this sermon. And the first one is everyone receives a blessing. Where would you like yours delivered? Here? Or in the kingdom to come? There is no merit in being poor by itself. You could be a nasty poor person, or you could be a righteous poor person. And, and likewise, in being rich, you could be awful, and by awful, I don't mean awful good. Or, or you could be righteous. Abraham was likely the richest man in, in the whole region during his time, but yet was used by God for his righteousness. And likewise, Isaac and, and Jacob, great wealth, more than any of us could begin to imagine. If you, if you look at it comparatively to you know, one versus another, you know, we couldn't even imagine being in that ballpark. I mean, it's, you know, Warren Buffett type, type comparison type stuff uh, when you look at them. So just by the mere fact that 
that, that somebody has a bank balance of a certain amount and somebody else has a bank balance of a less amount, that isn't some sort of final indicator of, okay, I guess we're going to sort it out that way. Uh, you're above that amount, you're in heaven. You're, uh, I mean, you're, you're, you're below that amount, you're in heaven. You're above that amount, you're in hell. That's the way it works. Should it, I mean, if, if it came down to just socioeconomic indicators, well, then what, what, what sense does, does righteousness make? However, I think it does speak to the idea of, do we have a mindset that is trying to create heaven here on earth, or are we really trying to live for the kingdom to come? And what Jesus introduces in the Sermon on the Mount is that if you're living so short-sightedly that it's only about the here and now, and you're not living for the great kingdom that is to come, well, then you're living by sight and not by faith. And to stop putting all this energy in creating heaven here on earth. I mean, that convicts me to the core, by the way, even as I speak these words, because to be poor, to hunger, to weep, to be hated and excluded, it's, it's nothing that I have on my checklist of things to do for the day. It's, it's probably just the opposite of, of what I hope is going to kind of be, be cultivated through the way that I, I live each of my days. But bottom line, why is it then that Jesus lays it out this way? You know what? The hookup is yours if you're poor, if you hunger, if you weep, if people hate you and exclude you. Well, it all comes down to not just whether that is going on, but look at the last phrase here. Because of the Son of Man. If, because of Jesus, your lifestyle has actually changed, well then, amen. Blessed are you. Because of Jesus, that you live differently. Because of Jesus, that you have sacrificed to the point of actually altering the way you live your life. Because of Jesus, your reputation is completely different than if you were just trying to live for Omar, Owen, and Omar. <laughs> and Oscar. Yeah. And other O. Barry Henry people. Uh, right, Owen? I gotcha. <laughs> but, if, but if you're just going after your own reputation, your own resume, your own achievements, well then, you're not living for the kingdom of God. And if, if we're waking up each day making this about ourselves rather than denying ourselves, then we've lost sight of what it is to follow Jesus. That there will be real sacrifice in our lives if we are truly living for Jesus. But, here's the great part. Blessings are going to come from living for Jesus. And, and, and as I mentioned, where do you want your blessings delivered? Do you want them delivered here and now? Where they're like a mist and then they vanish? Or would you like them delivered to the kingdom to come. At some point in time, the scriptures speak of this idea in Romans 
5 and 8 and 1 Corinthians 15, Revelation 21, it speaks of this idea of, of this whole creation longing for rebirth. And when that rebirth comes, everything is imperishable. Everything is permanent. Everything is glorious. Fantastic. And what we're living in right now will feel as though a breath, a mist, fleeting, as a, as a wink in comparison. Are we that short-sighted that we're trying to kind of gather it all and protect it all for now when actually redeploying it for the sake of the kingdom of God secures it all for them? Then you will have treasure in heaven, Jesus says in Matthew's version of the Sermon on the Mount. Then you will know the enduring riches that are always meant to be yours. Now, in this, in this recreation where the new Jerusalem comes down and there's a new heaven and a new earth and, and suddenly we have new imperishable bodies, we have this enduring life of, of an Edenic paradise here on earth and we're, and we're enjoying all of that, a lot of times I've had this thought, well, just so long as I get in, I'm fired up. But the scriptures do speak a whole lot on this idea of varying punishment in hell and varying rewards in heaven. We don't talk about it a lot because the unintended consequence of talking about it is that we can get into a works salvation mode. And God forbid that we ever do get into that mode. But since it's the subject matter that's here, I've got to address it. Now, for sure... We get into heaven, not because of any good work that we've done. Even as the scripture was read during the welcome, not because of any righteous works that we've done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Completely on the grace of Jesus, surrendered over to that, having repented, been baptized, our sins taken away, Holy Spirit given, new life given to us, all because of what Jesus has done for us. However, you cannot escape then scripture after scripture that speaks of this. And I'm going to read some to you. You can maybe take down the reference and, and, and look at this yourselves. Matthew 16, 27. The Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels, and then He will reward each person according to what they have done. Anyone who welcomes you, welcome, uh, Matthew 10, 40 to 42. Anyone who welcomes you, welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me, welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet, as a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever welcomes a righteous person, as a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And anyone who even gives a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person certainly will not lose their reward. Matthew 6, 19, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and vermin destroy, thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Matthew 25, verse 21, His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. A lot of this looks back to a couple of Psalms and Proverbs that speak to this quite clearly. These are Old Testament, obviously, but they, they inform some of what is said, even quoted in the New Testament. Psalm 62, for example, says in verse 11, 
One thing God has spoken, two things I have heard. Power belongs to you, God, and with you, Lord, is unfailing love. And you reward everyone according to what they have done. Proverbs 24, verse 12 says, But we knew nothing about this. I'm sorry, if you say, but we knew nothing about this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who guards your life know it? Will he not repay everyone according to what they have done? And even the New Testament judgment scene, as laid out clearly as it is in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due for us, the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Ephesians 6, 7 and 8. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you're serving the Lord, not people. This is how we're to work in our everyday jobs. Because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And when the New Testament closes in Revelation 22, not to mention how many times it's mentioned earlier all throughout the book of Revelation, but at the end of 22, when Jesus says, here I come, I'm coming back, get ready, this is what he says in 22.12. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me. And I will give to each person according to what they have done. So, we are in some sense or another, building up reward in heaven by the way that we live out our discipleship having been saved in Christ. We're not in any way securing our place in heaven. That's set. You're there, no worries in that regard. But to the degree to which you're going to be like, whoa, I am so glad. I went to Nehemiah's Nook that morning because this is sweet. Oh my, praise God. I am so glad that I reached out, helped that person. You know what? Rearranged my life, skipped that television show, sat down, studied the Bible, counseled that person, did a, that, that I rearranged my, I decided to live for Jesus. That time, that time, that time, and all those other times, rather than just living for me, because wow, this is what I have now forever? Just from some of those little, like meaningless seemingly things that I did? Now, again, this is fraught with peril, because we can start doing stuff for all the wrong reasons. But to completely ignore it is, is also, I think, not, not doing justice as well. But to recognize that every sacrifice that we make out of gratitude for having been saved is a delight to God. So much of a delight to God that He is excited to reward you. As Hebrews eleven six says, we must believe that God exists and he rewards those who seek him. Now, should we not do everything out of just purely selfless motives for the sake of our common man, for the glory of Jesus Christ? Yes. But, here's, I'm just kind of thinking out loud right now. But, if you do do something because you're looking forward to reward in heaven, that is still acting on faith. It's your faith that you have been saved by Jesus, it's your faith that there is a kingdom to come. And, and while it may not be the purest of all motives, it is actually living by faith and not by sight. So if that's what it takes in order to be a little bit excited about what it is that we get to do, maybe not the purest of all things. But to, to recognize, without a doubt, the scriptures lay out over 20 times the idea of variable rewards in heaven and moreover, variable punishments in hell. 
For he who knew and did not do the master's will will be beaten with many blows. But he who did not know his will will be beaten with fewer blows. As a matter of fact, many theologians have said any sinner in hell now would give all that they have not to get out of hell. For sure they would. But any sinner in hell now would give all that they have to lessen the number of sins they committed by just one. And that if we could know what it is that they go through, we would appreciate how repulsive, repugnant sin is and also how awful the, the, the many blows are that, that they would receive in the variable punishment that, that does exist there. So, in, in this idea of, of sobering ourselves, let, let it be that, that we take this wake-up call of recognizing that, you know what, not because I'm, I'm trying to, I don't know, get, get, get the, uh, the, the palace up in heaven, but because I really recognize that there is a kingdom to come, that there is work to be done here and now for that kingdom to come, that I get after it. Why, why is it that one would become poor and why is that a blessing? Well, because it makes you rely on God more. That there is a great... I've been, I've been poor and I've been better off during my time as a disciple and it's not as though when I was poor those were, oh, those were the bad old days. They were not. They were days where I, I got nothing. All I got is to rely on Jesus through all of this and you know what? I was fired up. Who, who hasn't been? We know that in a lot of cases, wealth is just a, I don't know, it's just a, an annoyance at times. But, I mean, we, 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 we use it to glorify God, but you are blessed if you are poor. And of all the uh, blessings that are laid out here, this is the only one that's laid out in the present tense. And this, I mean, Matthew, of course, says poor in spirit. But, you know, none of these actually speak of it in that way. These seem to be speaking of it in real terms when Luke talks about it here. As he does throughout his whole gospel, he has a special attention towards those marginalized by society. And so it, it does tend to think that, hey, no, if, if because of your discipleship of Jesus, it puts you in a state where you end up poor for whatever degree, well, you're blessed because you're going to know what it is to rely on God to a greater degree than you had to before. Why are you blessed if you hunger now? Well, again, it's because that this is, you've gotten to this place because of Jesus. Why when you weep? And, and again, you're looking at people who are living for the gospel. Why would they weep? I think if we, if we look at godly people in the, in the Bible, one of the, the great reasons for weeping is when they see the state of the world around them. Has it ever caused you to weep? Have you ever taken that kind of a hard look and had the compassion of Jesus? Even as Jesus looked over Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives and wept, Jesus wept, saying, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I wish to gather you together as a hen does her children, but you would have none of it. That's who we follow. That's how Jesus sees the world. That's the kingdom that he's trying to get across to us. Do we see it through the same eyes? That's what Jesus wants right now. That's the shock that's trying to come through this Sermon on the Mount to get a kingdom view, not a worldview anymore of the way that we make sense of every step we take through this existence that we have now. 
look at it through the lens of the kingdom of God. And when we live this out, people will hate you. They will exclude you. They will insult you. Uh, This is the idea of being put out of the synagogue, excluded, alienated, insulted, hated, and even your name being rejected as evil because of the Son of Man. But when that happens, rejoice. Leap for joy. Rejoice in that because great is your reward in heaven. A couple of years back when Deb and I were uh, out in uh, Charlottesville leading the church out there, we asked all of the UVA students to come up with their own outreach idea that would stretch them. And they came up with some of the most outlandish things that you could imagine. Some of them included jumping up on the lunch table in the uh, uh, dining hall and trying to begin a sermon right there in the midst of everyone. Uh, Others went up and down the stadium at a UVA football game inviting people to to Bible talk. Uh, Others of them got in front of the bus. Uh, One of them was a bus driver, and so he he made it work out for for the other person to do so. And and every time that the bus would go, they would begin to preach in front of the bus. But, I mean, it was item after item after item. I I ended up preaching in front of uh, a, a big fraternity gathering as they were running naked up and down the lawn. But we all had these, like, wild things. But in the end, let me assure you, Every one of us knew what it was to be insulted, to, to be rejected, to be excluded, and to be scorned by a lot of people all at one time. And a lot of very like, influential people that could be very intimidating, you know, kind of UVA type students, you know, up and down the line throughout it all. Well, this all happened on the same day. And we all came back, we gathered back at our house that night just to share what it was like to stretch ourselves for the sake of the gospel. And you have never seen the roof raise on that house like you did that night. The energy, it was a roar that went through and the roar was exactly this. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. And people were out of themselves in excitement of, for the sake of Jesus. For the sake of Jesus, we endured all of these. We weren't looking for it, by the way, and nor was that the goal. We just wanted to be able to reach as many people as possible. We thought we'd try something new. And as a result was, was all of this fallout. But to come back and to realize, oh my goodness, how true are these words? It is a time where our souls leapt, even in the moment, scared as we were, but then leapt physically amongst one another as we were able to share those times together. My second point. Everyone's a prophet. What kind are you? There's one phrase that ties together this whole section of Scripture. And the phrase is unmistakably the same in the original language, and frankly it is in in English as well. And the phrase sets off the four blessings and the four woes. And what is that phrase? Well, the first time that it appears, it appears at the end of verse 23. And there it says, For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. And then at the very end, in verse 26, 
the second half. And that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. So, as Jesus lays this out, he's basically saying to them all, you're my disciples. You're about to go out and represent me. You're all going to be prophets. Prophets don't simply mean those who predict the future. Prophets mean, primarily the definition of prophet, is anyone who lays out the truth plainly. It's not to foretell the future, but is to foretell the truth, to, to, to lay it out. So we're all called to do that. We're all called to be prophets. Everyone who falls into this category, and as a matter of fact, when we get to the uh, verse seven, chapter 7, verse 1, it says, when Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, so yes, he's targeting his disciples, but he meant this to spread to everybody, but for all of us who are in some way trying to figure out Jesus, trying to engage in the kingdom of God, live according to this worldview, he looks at us and he says, you are all going to lay forth the truth. You're all going to be prophets. What kind of prophet are you going to be? A true prophet or a false prophet? Because a false prophet very much will gain all kinds of acceptance in this world. And how do you become a false prophet? Well, I think one of the ways is that you learn the art of almost saying something. Having that deep talk with somebody, you're able to help them see that there is no other way but Jesus. And then they start to wiggle away. And you know what they say? Well, you know, it's God loves everybody. You know, isn't it good that we have such a big God and that we don't just limit him? Oh, but I think the most important thing is that we just tolerate all views from people. We just love everybody. And what are you going to do at that moment? Are you going to be a false prophet and go with it? Yeah, you're right. I guess that's the most important thing. The most important thing is that we're just good people. The most important thing is that we just love everybody. The most important thing is that we just really kind of tolerate and, and allow everybody the self-dignity of their own view. It sounds right, according to this world, but we're going to live in the kingdom of God. And to go that route is to be a false prophet. What would a true prophet say at that moment of truth, at that very juncture? A true prophet would say, well then, you can't follow Jesus. Jesus demands that we view him through the eyes of exclusivity. Because he's so narrow? Because he's so mean? No. How much kinder can he be? But he's the one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets to the Father except through me. And as I often share in those moments, okay, God loves everybody, but here's what he does. So it's not some big, nebulous, amorphous, vague cloud that we somehow align ourselves with in some mystical experience. Because there's no security in knowing whether you did that or not. But God in his love looked at our mess and said, what more can I do? What great demonstration of love can I do? Here's what I'll do. I'll have my own son, my only son, whom I love, to go humble himself, take on the flesh of human, live an entire life 
having been tempted by the devil, fight it off. And then despite being rejected by everybody, dismissed by, by most people today, half-heartedly extolled by, by some others, despite all that, he's going to take all your sin and die the most brutal death that we can come up with. And it's going to be really visible and gruesome and excruciating. And it's going to be torture. And it's going to last all night. It's going to last all morning. And then he's going to hang on a cross where all of that pain not only humiliates him, but also rips him apart. And it takes six hours for him to die on that cross. And he's going to be filled with the filth of sin, the greatest of all pains, perhaps, that he's going to have. And he's going to do all that so that you can have security and certainty about the love of God and the clarity of how exactly God is going to give you every single hookup blessing that you could possibly have. Now, having all done all that, is it so wrong for God to say, and by the way, this is the way that you need to be connected to me. And it's an insult to that God to say, well, maybe there's a lot of different ways. Really? If there are a lot of different ways, then why is there this way? Why not choose any of those other different ways? Why not make that the big deal? You know what? Just feel nice about people. Put on a tolerance bumper sticker as you drink your mocha cappuccino at Starbucks and smile at people. And that's how you're enlightened and saved. What? Why have the cross? Why have his son go through that? There is no other way. And the way that you connect to it is just as clear because it all has to do with clarity, certainty, security of making sure that what he did is cemented for us, for, for, for clarity's sake. A false prophet just goes with, yeah, you're right. Just feel good. Love everybody. True prophet doesn't, doesn't go down that way. True prophet doesn't let that happen. A true prophet hears the wah, 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 wah alarm of like, no, you are not leaving this situation the way that it is right now. And, and as you do, guess what happens? You're exclusive. You're closed-minded. You are narrow. And all that worship at the altar of tolerance are going to come against you. You know, ironically... When all those groups that get together under the banner of tolerance are either all white or all Asian or Hispanic or all black. Yeah. Look at this group. They shuffled the deck. Yeah. Are we tolerant? You bet we're tolerant. We're tolerant of all people, for sure. But we're not tolerant of all ideas, especially those that set themselves up against God. And so we need to be prophets. Every one of us need to be prophets. What kind of prophet are you going to be? And a false prophet, you're going to get the golf clap. Oh, look at that. And he's such a good husband. He's such a good father. Oh, he's such a good worker. And then, you know what? He just gives me good feelings all day long. And you never actually address or confront. That's a false prophet. As a matter of fact, one of the definitions of a false prophet from a great prophet, Jeremiah, he says, this, this is... The visions of your prophets who were false and worthless. They do not expose your sin, 
and so do not ward off your captivities. The prophecies they give you were false and misleading. Nobody wants to deal with sin. Nobody's going to be happy that you say, okay, you know what? If we're really going to get serious about Jesus, about grace, we got to get serious about sin. We got to talk about it. We got to expose it. We got to repent of it. False prophets don't do that. Plenty of churches out there filled with false prophets. They'll say, hey, you know what? You know what the path to God is? Just self improvement. Get better and better and nicer and nicer, and ultimately you'll be more like Jesus Christ. No, no, no. It's all about getting real and deep. Jesus went to a cross because of sin. He didn't go to the cross because it enhances our path of self-improvement. He went there for a reason. Time for us, collectively, to get serious about this and throw down the gloves, look through the filter of the kingdom of God, mourn as a prophet mourns, cry because we care, that we're not just confrontational because we're angry, that was because we're saddened. We all were in that mess. We can empathize. We know that if nobody intervened in our lives, we'd be the mess that we are. My goodness, now, have, now it's time to take that same compassion to the streets, everywhere that God has placed you. Ah, but I'm so busy. Awesome. That means that you're probably coming in contact with a lot of people. Ah, I'm a free time. That's right, because yeah, you probably evolve with stuff all the time. Amen. God has put you there to be a prophet, not to be a false prophet, not to just get along. You are there to make a difference. It's time as we get into the Sermon on the Mount, the kingdom of God, that we now see it shining as it is. Embrace it. Be excited about it, about the age to come. It's all about that. And to now, look at the path that we have to take. And I want you, I want you to share with somebody. I want you to share your conviction about, you know what? I think I was a false prophet with somebody recently. I think I backed off. The Holy Spirit was kicking me upside the head. He was doing the wah, wah, wah alarm, and I shut it off. And, and, and I know what he was trying to get me to do. He was trying to get me to be a true prophet. And I softened it. I wanted to be likable. I wanted to be a false prophet. Because I wanted my blessings here and now. Go back to that person. Whoever it is, go back and make it right. Go back and honor Jesus. Go back and... Honor the kingdom of God. Go back and walk by faith, not by sight. Go back and be excited about blessings to come. Go back and make a difference for Jesus Christ. Amen.